A, um, a couple of months ago, I went to the FIEC uh, Leaders uh, Convention. It was for a few days in, um, in the glamour spot of Blackpool, which coming from Hartlepool, I felt like a great affinity for another slightly run-down coastal town um, uh, and just the other side of the, uh, of the country. Um, so FIEC is the network of churches that we belong to. It's the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches. And, and I, I went there, and I know a few of the uh, different church leaders who were there. There was uh, one of our good friends, um, Hugo Charteris, was there. He's a South African guy who um, uh, leads a church up in Newcastle uh, called Christ Church Newcastle. So he was there, um, and I said, I said one evening, oh, it'd be good, it'd be good to catch up uh, after, after the meeting. So after the meeting, we went down to the bar, and we sat down, and... Um, and had a drink and, and decided to catch up. But as I walked over to him, uh, he was sat with a, another chap who I'd never met before. And um, Hugo introduced him and says, oh, this is, can't remember his name, but he um, oversees the gospel partnerships um, that exist across uh, the UK. So, um, so that, that's who he is. Um, and Hugo introduced me to him by saying, uh, this is Ben, he's from Grace Church, Harleypool. They're not part of the Northeast Gospel Partnership. Um, to which, to which kind of, you know, I said, I said, well, I, I like to think, I li- I'd like to think we are, even though we don't actually do anything to indicate that we are. Um, and, and so we go into a conversation. Now, I don't know how you would respond if you'd sat down with someone and kind of you knew that they were the leader of the gospel partnerships. You were generally positive about gospel partnerships, and you'd be introduced to someone who wasn't a part of it. This is how I responded. I responded by telling this, this gentleman over the next 45 minutes, all the things that I thought were wrong with gospel partnerships across the country. Um, so I, I, I went through it and I was like, oh, and every time he said, oh yeah, well, we try and do this, I was like, yeah, so you do try and do this, but have you thought that maybe this and maybe this? And after 45 minutes of this, I just thought, what, what am I doing? Right, I've just met this guy for the first time. His job is gospel partnerships. I quite like the gospel partnership. I'm, I'm, I'm all in favor of the gospel partnership. It's a good organization. I'm glad that they do what they do. So why on earth have I spent 45 minutes telling him all the things that I don't like about the gospel partnership. Like, what on earth possessed me at that point? And I went away from that meeting thinking, this guy must think, who's that idiot from Grace Church, Harleypool? I'm glad they're not part of the Northeast Gospel Partnership. Um, now, you may have had, you may have had not the same situation, but you may have had a similar situation where you've met someone for the first time and something has kind of gone wrong in your brain um, and you just know you've made the worst possible first impression you could ever make. I, I kind of think if I ever see this person again, he's just going like, to walk in the opposite direction. He's going to like, avoid any conversation with, with this person. Um, and, and the problem with it is that we know first impressions matter. So we know it matters kind of what people make of you the first time they meet you. People love to like trot out stats, which I think most of them are made up, um, about how important first impressions are. But the reason that they resonate is because we know that they're true. We know that when you meet someone for the first time, you're quite quickly trying to make a view on who is this person, what are they like, what do they care about, you know, all those kind of things. <coughs> now, that's where we are in Jesus' ministry in John 2. We're, we're, like, we're right at the start. So Jesus has gone and he's been baptized as kind of symbolizing the beginning of his ministry. He's started pulling a few of his disciples together, so he's got a few followers now. He's got a bit of a team that he's working with. But now he's just about to start his public ministry. 
Uh, and the question you're left with is, how are you going to launch it? You know, if you're, if you're going to go, right, now is the beginning of my public ministry, like, what are you going to do to kick it off? What are you going to do to let people know, this is who I am, this is what I'm about? Like, what, what, how would you make yourself known? Because after all, first impressions are important. What you do first is going to matter. So when we were thinking about planting Grace Church, we thought, you know, well, what do we want the first Sunday to look like? Because we knew that it would matter, it would shape the way that Sundays would look going forwards. What's the first thing you're going to give people as a glimpse of what you're all about? Well, here in John 2, we're going to read about the first sign that Jesus did. We know it's the first sign because John tells us it's the first sign. So this is the first sign that Jesus does, we're told. So let's see how Jesus chooses to kick off his ministry. Let me read it to you. We're going to read John 2, verse 1 down to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Now, you probably know the story. You know, Jesus turning water into wine. If you don't know the story, you'll definitely have come across it as an idea. So, you know, if you were playing Pointless and the the category was miracles that Jesus performed, you wouldn't pick water into wine. It's one of the ones, you know, that people would trot off pretty quickly. If if they didn't know any of the miracles of Jesus, they'd probably start talking about, oh yeah, he turned water into wine, didn't he? That's the thing he did. But as is the case with all stories that we're familiar with, there's a danger that we fail to just see, I guess for this one specifically, how random this miracle is. Like, this is, this is a strange miracle. Um, it's, it, as far as we're, we know, it, it's pretty much a one-off. You know, Jesus does a lot of certain miracles. He does a lot of healings. He does a lot of giving blind people sight. He, he's into, he does a lot of those. But, but water into wine seems like a one-off. And if I'm honest, if I was looking to start my ministry, if I was looking to go, okay, how do I want to kick off what I'm going to be about, turning water into wine probably wouldn't have been where I'd have started. It's not, it wouldn't have been like, okay, this is how I want to announce what my ministry is about. This is how I want to start making myself known. I'd have started with something a bit more impressive, so I'd have wanted to start with, you know, maybe a raising of the dead or, uh, uh, you know, a, a miraculous healing, something of that ilk. I'd have also wanted to start with something that had a bit more of an impact. Because, I mean, if you make a blind person see, just think of the impact that has on that person's life. That's somebody who couldn't see, who now can see. That completely changes their life. It changes the things that they're able to do. 
That, that has a huge impact. But turning water into wine, I mean, that doesn't quite have the same impact. All it means is that people who'd run out of wine would now have a bit more wine to drink. Like that, that's, that's the entirety of the impact. And so all in all, it doesn't seem that impressive, and it doesn't seem that impactful. So like, why would you start there? Why, why would that be where you'd begin your ministry? Over the past uh, few months, um, I've started watching uh, a show with Anna and Hope called The Mentalist. Now, if you're, I don't know, probably about my age, then you've probably at least caught the odd episode of it in your life just before you had like limitless choice on the internet it was one of those things that would be like on and you'd maybe catch an episode I don't think many people have kind of watched it religiously but but you'll have probably caught the the odd episode for those of you who don't know what it's about let, let me explain so the the mentalist uh, follows the uh, story of a guy called Patrick Jane and and it's about him going around solving crimes with some like American police force um that, that's, that's the story. Now, for Patrick Jane, you just need to imagine a slightly friendlier, more socially able, um, does someone want to just beep in the door, thanks, um, a, a slightly friendlier, slightly more socially able Sherlock Holmes. That's who you've basically got. So Patrick Jane is, is this guy who notices things and sees things that normal people just miss. He, he can read people in a way that most of us can't. That, that's kind of how he works. And so he does, you know, he does the classic Sherlock things, uh, Sherlock Holmes thing in like every episode. So he turns up, one episode, he turns up and there's this um, car, there's this car there and there's a dead body in it. And he does, he, you know, he does the Sherlock Holmes things. He looks at it and goes, well, this woman is 26 and a half years old. She had jam for breakfast. She likes karaoke and finger knitting. And, you know, and just lists all these things about this person's life. Um, and, and as he does this, the police, of the, the kind of chief of police there says, what's he on about? Like, that's just guesswork. That's not, that's not police work. I mean, that's just, he's just guessing. Anyone could guess things, things about him. And, and so Patrick Jane says, oh, well, do you know the game Rock, Paper, Scissors? Um, if you don't know the game Rock, Paper, Scissors, then... I can't be bothered explaining it. Um, uh, I'm going to assume everyone knows the game Rock, Paper, Scissors, so I'm just going to keep explaining elements of this story for the rest of this afternoon. Um, so, so he says, do you know the game Rock, Paper, Scissors? And the chief of police goes, yeah. He says, well, let's play. And so Patrick Jane and the chief of police start playing Rock, Paper, Scissors. And Patrick Jane wins every single game. So, you know, as he goes rock, Patrick Jane goes paper. As he goes scissors, Patrick Jane goes rock. You know, whatever the chief of police does... Patrick Jane is just able to read him and to, to go the opposite. Now, of course, he's able to do this because it's fictional <laughs> and they wrote it and so they knew exactly what they were going to go. But, but this is the story. So the story is Patrick Jane, you know, he can do this thing and, and then he plays this rock game of rock, paper, scissors against the chief police. And you look at it and you go, what, what is Patrick Jane doing there? He's probably not trying to communicate to the chief of uh, the police how good he is at rock, paper, scissors. That's probably not his like, central aim. He's like, probably not trying to go, look, I, just wanna, uh, I know we were talking about this crime scene, but I just want to take a few minutes out of talking about crime to play some competitive rock, paper, scissors. That's probably not what's going on there. What he's doing is he's saying, look, look you are doubting what I'm saying. You're, you're saying, how could you possibly know that? And I'm going to demonstrate how, how able I am to read situations, to read people, by this thing that is in some ways unrelated. 
You see, the game Rock, Paper, Scissors actually has nothing to do with Rock, Paper, Scissors at that point. It's Patrick Jane's way of showing the chief police that he's able to see and read things that other people miss. It's his way of him, it's his way of demonstrating why the police should pay attention to what he says. It's a proxy, it's a sign, a way of pointing to something else. Now, I want to suggest that that's, broadly speaking, what we have here with the miracle of the water being turned into wine. This miracle is not primarily about demonstrating Jesus' commitment to wine, although we will talk a little bit about Jesus and wine later because there there is a relationship between those two things. Um, But it's not primarily about that. Jesus isn't here particularly uh, looking to make a theological point about wine. It's a miracle intended to teach certain things. And that's why John calls it a sign. A sign is not about itself. A sign is always about what it points to. That's what the value of a sign is. You know, when you have a sign that's pointing somewhere, you tend not to look at the sign and go, that's a nice looking sign. Like, I've never seen a sign looks that good before. You don't decorate your signs. I mean, you might. But anyway, you, you, the point of the sign is what it points to. So if this is a sign, the question you've got to be answering is, asking is, what's it pointing to? What is this sign there to teach us? What is it there to show us? Now, this is week one of a few weeks talking about miracles. And I just want to like, get this groundwork in early. Because this is so important to how we understand and think about miracles full stop. Miracles are like teaching demonstrations. Jesus has something he wants to teach, something he wants us to learn, and the miracles act as a visual demonstration of that thing. Because if you miss that point, then you end up in this kind of weird, weird world where you go, well, why was that miracle done and that, that miracle not done? Why are some people healed, but not everyone healed? Why, when Jesus could have been doing something useful... Was he turning water into wine? Why does he stop that specific storm, but he leaves 99% of the storms to rage on unimpeded? If you see miracles as primarily an end in themselves, then you always get stuck in this ground of, well, why was that miracle done and that miracle not done? Why did he heal that person and not that person? Why, why, why? You end up in that loop. You end up wondering why some people get miracles and others don't. But if you understand miracles as primarily signs designed to teach you, to help us understand something, then you start going, okay, well, that miracle that happened there is a sign to me as much as it's a sign to anyone else. It's an illustrative example rather than a random act of kindness. I think it's important that we understand what miracles are. And so the question you should ask whenever you see a miracle, and we're going to ask this each of the weeks we're looking at them, is what is this miracle designed to teach us? Why did Jesus do it, and what did he want us to learn from it? Because he did it to teach something. He didn't just do it because he was like, I fancy making some wine out of some water. He did it because he wanted us to learn something about who he is and about what he was doing. And so from this miracle, I just want to suggest three things that I think Jesus wanted us to learn from this. Three things that he wanted to teach us from this first miracle that he does. I wonder if you've got a friend who's, you know, the life and soul of the party. Uh, just, just I want you to imagine a situation. So imagine that you, you're having a few f- 
friends round for, you know, I don't know, a meal or a party or whatever it is. Maybe it's New Year's Eve and you've invited a group of people round. And you invite them round and you look, you think about the, the guest list and you look at them and you're like, ooh, are they going to get on with them? You know, are they going to clash? Is that going to work? And the, you think, are they actually going to chat? Like, they don't really know them. They don't really know them. Am I going to walk into a room and everyone's just going to be like sat awkwardly eating peanuts and not really talking? Like, is that where it's going to go? Imagine you've done that. Who's the person who you'd go, oh, I just wish they were there? Because if they, as long as they come and know that it's not going to be like that. If they're there, I know that they'll make sure that they're talking to them. I know that they'll make sure that everyone's having a good time. I know that they'll, you know, who's that person? We, we, I guess you have them. I can definitely think of those people in my life. Who's the, who's the person I'm like, as long as they come, this is going to work. But if they, they don't, I'm a little bit nervous about how, how the whole party's going to work. Who's that person for you? You probably got a name in your mind at that point. Who's the person who you know that if they come, they'll make it fun. They'll bring the energy They'll make people feel at ease. At this wedding feast, Jesus is that person. There would literally be no party if there was no Jesus. And by that I mean everyone would go home because they'd run out of wine. And so there would actually be no party because there would be nobody left at this place. You could legitimately say about the wedding at Cana, no Jesus, no party. Now that is going to play a really important part in Jesus' ministry. I, I, just, I maybe hadn't quite grasped how important a part of Jesus' ministry it was until I started thinking about it this week. Like Everywhere Jesus is, there seems to be eating and drinking. It's just like, it's just what happens. Where Jesus goes, there's these crowds of people and they're always eating and they're always having meals and they're always feasting and they're always drinking. That's so much so that he gets accused, doesn't he, by the Pharisees of being a drunken and a glutton. That's their accusation against him. Like, Jesus, you're doing too much of that eating, drinking, celebrating thing. Like, didn't think that was what it was about. He did, he did enough of that that he'd obviously got a reputation for it. And actually, he's okay with that reputation. In fact, he says to his disciples at one point, he says, when I'm with you, this is the time for feasting and celebration. When I go, that's when there's time for fasting. But while I'm here, this is celebration time. You don't fast while I'm here. See, Jesus was, Jesus was comfortable with that reputation. Like, where, where I'm there, this is the time for eating, drinking, and celebrating. That, that's what me being with you looks like. Now, that's important because that is not, let's be clear, that's not the way our culture thinks about Jesus. Our culture doesn't think, oh, where Jesus is, that's where the party is. Now, that's not how people think about Jesus. And yet, he starts off his ministry by miraculously providing wine for a feast. He repeatedly says, I've come to bring joy and celebration and feasting and life in all its fullness. Now, I've said this many times in the life of Grace Church, and I will say it many times for as long as I'm here. So the only way you're going to stop hearing me saying this is if I'm, for some reason, no longer at Grace Church. So for as long as I'm here, you're going to have to get used to hearing this. Jesus did not give up heaven, come down to earth, suffer at the hands of evil people, be tortured, die on a cross, 
suffer the judgment that we deserve. He didn't do all of that so that he could then ruin your life. Like, that was not his end goal. He wasn't like, you know what, I'm going to do, go through all this hardship, or I'm going to give up all of this so that I can ruin some people's lives. That was not what motivated him. That was not what drove him. Maybe, maybe you're not a Christian here today. You're somebody who kind of doesn't, wouldn't say that you follow Jesus or doesn't kind of live your life uh, kind of living for him and obeying him. And maybe you're worried about the problem of being a Christian is all the stuff I'd have to give up. Like, I'm, just, I'm just worried about all the stuff that I'd have to go without. Now, now, I don't want you to hear me wrong. There would be a cost. There would be stuff you'd have to give up. There is. Jesus was clear about that as well. There would be sacrifices. And it will not always be easy. But all of the cost and all of the sacrifice is designed to give you more life, not less. It's designed to help you know and enjoy God now, and then know and enjoy him for eternity. That's the purpose of it. If you're there thinking, I don't know if I really want to follow Jesus because I'm worried it's going to ruin my life. That is not what Jesus came to do. That's not what he was about. And, and that's something that you need to know if you're someone who doesn't follow Jesus. But that's something you need to know if you're someone here today who does follow Jesus. Because the amount of times that we as Christians find ourselves thinking the sort of, do I have to question about Christianity? Do I have to be faithful to my wife? Do I have to love this difficult person? Do I have to be generous with my money? Do I have to avoid getting drunk all the time? You see, we're asking that, that question, like, do I have to do this thing? As if not doing it is somehow diminishing our lives. It's making our lives worse. That's not Jesus' intention. They're not things you have to do. I mean, they are, but that's not primarily what they are. They're things that Jesus calls you to do because this is where life is found. This is the fullness of life that Jesus came to bring you. Jesus is not calling you to do these things because he wants to make your life worse. He's calling you to do these things because he wants you to make your life he wants to make your life better. The life Jesus calls you to is the best life available to you. And the life he promises you in eternity is the best life you could possibly imagine. Here at the start of his ministry, Jesus turns water into wine and he makes it crystal clear. He is not anti-fun and that ultimately what he wants to do is he wants to bring and extend the celebration. That's what Jesus is about. So that's the first thing this miracle is designed to, to show. This is the first thing it points to. It's designed to help us understand something about the purpose of Jesus' mission. What is he about? But the second thing that you see this is uh, about teaching us, you see in kind of this slightly odd discussion that goes on in verses 9 and 10. If you've got a Bible, you can see in front of you. The wine Jesus provided was better than the wine that had gone before. You know, they make a point of spelling this out. They kind of waste a few sentences on it. Now, it's, always, it's just worth remembering this when we look at miracles. Often, when we're trying to understand what the point of a miracle is, it's worth looking at, well, what are the additional details we're told about it? Because you normally told those details for a reason. There's a reason why that conversation between the bridegroom and the guests is included. If it wasn't meant to teach us something, they just wouldn't have put it in. It doesn't really add much other than what it teaches us. 
And that's true of all miracles. In all miracles, you should look at, well, what are the additional details that were given? What's the extra bits that you didn't, wouldn't really need? Because that'll help you understand, well, what is Jesus trying to teach from this? So, for example, there's, um, there's a quite a famous uh, account in the Gospels where Jesus um, restores a man's sight. And he does a lot of restoring people's sight. But in this particular example, he, he kind of restores the man's sight, but the, the man can still only see partially. So he kind of restores it. And he says, I can sort of see, but where I see men, they look more like trees walking around. And then Jesus goes again and he kind of uh, heals him and now we can see fully. Now what's going on in that miracle? Did Jesus just get it wrong? Was he like, ah, oh, sorry, I got the wrong miracle. I should have done this miracle. I only half healed you. You can, only, you can see a little bit. Sorry, I'll correct my mistake. Did Jesus get it wrong? Is that what we're, we're doing in that? I, I mean, clearly not because he heals people's sight all the time. Now, that's not what's going on in that. No, the reason it happens like that is because at that particular point in Jesus' ministry, he's trying to teach us something about spiritual sight and about how people partially see, are starting to partially piece together who he is, but can't yet fully see who he is. You've just had the moment where Peter has said, I believe you're the Christ. And so people are starting to understand something of who Jesus is, but they still haven't entirely grasped it. And so that detail about the healing actually helps unlock, well, what is Jesus trying to teach through this Miracle. It's in the details that we see the teaching. Now, this detail in this miracle about the wine that Jesus made being better than what had come before is going to be really important to Jesus' ministry because he's repeatedly going to claim and say that he's come to bring something new and better. That's how Jesus is going to talk about what he came to do. He's going to come to bring new wine. Wine which is better than that which came before. This is Jesus' way of saying that what he's come to do is different and better than what God has been doing prior to this point. God's plan in the Old Testament of forgiveness and relationship with God was good. We're told it was good. We can see it was good. It had a glory of its own. That's how it's described in Hebrews. It had its own glory. But... It was not as good as what Jesus was going to do. What Jesus is going to do is going to be so much better. Jesus is going to offer forgiveness to all people, free access to God for all people through a one-off act that would be sufficient for all of time. His death for us. And so at the start of his ministry, Jesus wants to emphasize what I'm going to be doing, what my ministry is about, it's going to be better than everything that's come before it. It's not going to be you know, just a different option that you might want to choose. It's going to be an entirely new vintage. Superior in every imaginable way. See, Jesus is here at the start of his ministry. He's trying to teach us things about what he's going to be doing. He's trying to teach us that his ministry is about this, this celebration, this feasting, this new life. He also wants to to tell us that his ministry is going to be about something new and something better. It's not merely an extension of what went before. The final thing that I think we see in this, that I just want to draw attention to, I'm sure there's more in there, but in the interest of time, then we'll just do one more. The final thing is the other slight oddity in this story. You'll have noticed it as you were reading it. Mary comes down to Jesus and says, we've run out, we've run out of wine. 
And Jesus gives this slightly cryptic answer. His answer is, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Which is like not a straightforward answer. Like if, you, if I went to someone and said, look, we've run out of wine, and they said, why have you come to me? My hour has not yet come. I'd be like, so <laughs> what happens now? You know, it's, it's not overly clear what is now going to happen at that point. So what is Jesus getting at? Why does Jesus respond like this? This is what I think he's saying. I think what he's saying is there will be a time for wine. But this is not that hour. There will be an hour when he will be sorting out the wine shortage. But this hour actually isn't that hour. Why do I think he's saying that? What's he going on about? I think to understand this, you have to go back to the Old Testament. You have to see the way that the Old Testament talked about when God's kingdom came. Because the Old Testament talked of a day, the day of the Lord, when God would come in all his glory and splendor, and he would judge the world, and he would rescue his people, and he would bring his kingdom finally to rule as it should, forever and ever on earth. And on this day, we are told uh, numerous times that the mountains will drip with new wine. That's the language that's used. There will be this day when God will come and he will make all things right. And on that day, the mountains will run, drip with new wine. And so Jesus is here and he's declaring that the kingdom of God's here. The kingdom of God is here is one of his kind of favorite refrains. It's one of the things he says again and again. And so the obvious question is, great, well, where's the wine? If the kingdom of God's here, then we've been told on that day, these mountains are going to drip with new wine. And Jesus, I think, here is saying, that day will come, but it's not here yet. This is not that hour. But that hour will come. That hour will come one day, but it's not here now. And that day will finally come when Jesus returns. You see, what happens in the Old Testament is these two, the two comings of Jesus get, get shortened. So they get talked about in the same way. So you will talk about the, the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, all as the day of the Lord. But actually, as you get close to them, you realize that there's a time gap between those two things. We catch a glimpse of that day in the book of Revelation. Because the book of Revelation talks about the day when Jesus returns, the day when God's kingdom finally comes on earth as it is in heaven. When God's kingdom finally comes down and God lives among his people on earth. And on that day, we're told in Revelation, there'll be another wedding. And this wedding will not be in Cana. In fact, it will be a wedding that's celebrated and enjoyed across the whole earth. And it's the wedding between the God who is Jesus and his people. In Revelation, it's described as the wedding of the Lamb. And at that wedding, the wine will flow from the mountains and it will never run out. And there will be joy and celebration for all of eternity. This hour, that hour that, we, that is 
talked about in Revelation. That's the hour that this miracle anticipates. This is a foreshadowing of it, a pointing forward to that day. And in fact, that's actually true of all miracles. That's how all miracles work. All miracles are at some level just a foreshadowing of that day when all those miracles finally come true. Every miracle ultimately points forward to that hour. Every miracle of healing points forward to the day when all suffering, all sickness is abolished. That's when that miracle is fulfilled. Every miracle of sight points forward to the day when we will all see God face to face. Every miracle of new life points to the resurrection which will take place on that final day. And so this miracle of wine points forward to the day when we will celebrate the wedding feast of the Lamb and wine will flow and there will be rejoicing for all of our days. Every miracle is just a foreshadowing of that day when all the miracles become not miracles, but truth for all people. Jesus wants to make clear at this point that miracles always point forward. And so whether we experience miracles in our lives now or not, we know that we look forward to a day where these miracles are finally performed and enjoyed by all people. Miracles give us confidence to believe that that day will one day come. And they whet our appetite for that world that we all long for. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you that you showed us the kind of God you were. We showed, you showed us what you cared about. And you gave us that foreshadowing, that, that taste of the ultimate world you are creating. The world where God and men finally dwell together where there is no more evil and there is no more sickness and there is no more death, where there is no more hunger, where there is joy and celebration. But God, I thank you that as we see this first sign that Jesus did, we get an insight into the kind of God you are. And look, God, I thank you for what an attractive image of you it is. A God who loves celebration. A God who can promise us a future that we all long for. A God who offers something that is better than anything that has ever been offered by anyone else. And Father God, I just pray for us in this room. I pray that we would believe that that is the kind of God you are. We find it so easy to doubt that reality. And when we doubt that reality, we find it so easy to carry on on our path, rebelling against you, rejecting you fleeing from you instead of running towards you. Look, God, I pray that as we see your miracles, we would see the God that the miracles point to. And I pray that would enable us to continue to draw near to you. Amen. One of the things I've been thinking about as I've been thinking about this series is how much we all actually need miracles. Um, if you look at the world uh, and you look at the history of the world over thousands of years, it seems like natural solutions are not sufficient. 
They don't actually solve the problems that we have in the world. They don't deal with the evil we see around us. They don't deal with the pain that we see in our world. We, we clearly need supernatural solutions to these problems. And so we're going we're gonna to finish by uh, singing a couple of songs. We're going to finish by uh, praying that, that prayer. How long, how long do we carry on with the brokenness, looking forward, longing for that day where there is an answer to it? And then that image of we then look forward to that day like a bride or a groom looks forward to their wedding day, anticipating it, longing for it, but confident that it will come. So let's, let's sing.